Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and today's very special guest. You know, of all cabinet secretaries in most administrations, the Secretary of Energy is one of those we hear the least about. (laughs) You don't remember much about Rick Perry, do you? But not in this administration. Jennifer Granholm, President Biden's energy secretary, is one of the most prominent cabinet secretaries, and for two good reasons. One, because two pieces of legislation, the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, Both impact so much of the energy industry, everything from the electric grid to electric cars to charging stations and gas stoves. And two, because Jennifer Granholm, former governor of Michigan, is just so damn good at her job. She's smart, articulate, and determined to make good things happen on her watch. A few days ago, I had the honor of welcoming Secretary Granholm to a Talk of the Hill event at Washington's Hill Center. And I knew you'd enjoy listening in on our conversation, starting with my introduction of the secretary to the crowd at the Hill Center. Madam Secretary, when it comes to introductions, I'm always reminded of a little story about First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, who's such an incredibly accomplished woman. Um, and uh, she, when she was about to speak and in the introductions, it seemed took so long and long and she finally put out the word to her staff, just tell people to just cool it, right? You know, keep it really brief. Uh, so the next time she went out uh, at some public event, uh, the uh, uh, master of ceremony said, so our next speaker is Eleanor Roosevelt. The less said about her, the better. <laughs> uh, I love that. <laughs> So if we keep this brief, you understand. Yes, yes, please. Uh, But the secretary comes uh, to us from uh, a very exciting background, our BA from UC Berkeley, a law degree from Harvard. Then she went on to become the attorney general of uh, the state of Michigan and, of course, governor of the state of Michigan for two terms. And now uh, our secretary of energy, President Biden's cabinet, Um, One of the most important of all the agencies, and particularly important today, with all the new responsibilities uh, that come to the Department of Energy under the uh, Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, particularly with its emphasis on climate change and clean energy. So uh, certainly a very important post and one that she occupies with the full confidence and trust of the President of the United States. On a personal note, I must tell you that I first met uh, the Secretary and interviewed her when she was Governor of Michigan. 
And then for a couple of years, she and I were the stars of Al Gore's current TV. <laughs> we both had a show. I was a morning show, and the secretary had an evening show, and we had a lot of fun visiting back and forth on our stuff. So it is wonderful to see you. So welcome great to, to see the, you too, Bill. Welcome to the Hill Center. Thank, and thank you. you for for joining us. Now we have a little tradition here that we uh, put, when people sign up, we ask them, what's the most important question that you think we should ask the secretary, uh, our guest? And so uh, this evening, we've done that survey, and I want you to know what was on everybody's mind, number one. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you going to take away our gas stove? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I hope you're kidding about that being the number one. But the answer is nobody is going to take away anybody's gas stove. It's uh, I mean, honestly, that's like such a blown up ridiculous thing. But we did put out some, um, the Department of Energy does a lot uh, with appliance regulation, making sure they're more efficient, right? And so we did put out uh, guidance for both electric, uh, electric stoves as well as gas stoves, like we do for all the other appliances. And you know, nobody's taken away anybody's gas stove, if you like it. But we do love the induction stoves, yes. can I just say uh, that? <laughs> but I was going to say, maybe the more serious question, is there a good reason why we should be moving from gas stoves to induction top. Yeah, I so. think there is. I mean, honestly, first of all, uh, gas stoves, it's been found that 12.6% um, of uh, the kids who are in um, uh, homes that have gas stove uh, have a higher percentage of asthma because of the, of course, they ad uh, emit, um, you know, particulates and noxious fumes, et cetera. So that is a concern. But number two, um, for those who care about efficiency, Induction stoves, for example, are much more efficient than than other stoves all around, and they're safer. I mean, for for people with children, for example, you know, you can put your hand on an induction stove and it's not going to burn because the 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 pot he, uh, heats in interaction with the coils underneath the stove, so it's not a in it. It heats twice as fast, by the way. But it's a much safer uh, product as well. And the Inflation Reduction Act is going to give people a lot of incentives to be able to, when they decide, if they decide they want to convert to induction stoves, you can get today a 30% tax credit for purchasing uh, an induction stove. Uh, and there will be rebates. Those are income um, dependent. Uh, th those will be coming out later this year as well. So there's a, you know, there's a lot to love about it. So let's go back up to the role of the department, because it is a department that some people, I think, don't understand the breadth and expanse of the things that come under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of Energy. Can you give us the, uh, the quick 30,000 foot? Yeah, I mean, people may not realize, I mean, first of all, because we got all of this new um, ability to deploy clean energy in the bills that were passed last year, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, people think it's all about just making sure that we get clean energy out. And it certainly is that. But it's also about the future of energy. So we have 17 national laboratories. There's about 100,000 DOEers across the country in laboratories, huge laboratories. In fact, one of the laboratories, um, the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, uh, lab just uh, uh, made news in December because it, uh, it successfully um, created ignition to be able to have fusion as opposed to fission for nuclear <laughs> power. It is uh, a very exciting breakthrough. But so we 
have 17 of these massive facilities across the country doing next generation uh, technology. So that's one piece. The, the today deployment is another piece. And we also have a, the mission of making sure that our um, national nuclear stockpile is safe, secure, and effective. So there is a defense component as well as a non-proliferation of nuclear weapons component. Uh, so there's a whole uh, suite of things. In addition to, there are a number of sites that were um, used during the Manhattan Project and that where there is radiation, uh, you know, radioactive materials, and there's a huge amount of cleanup that uh, is done on that site. So that mission is also a piece of what the Department of Energy is. But now we just created a whole new undersecretary for infrastructure, which is all about deploying um, the, these technologies and making sure that we meet the president's goal, which is to get 100% clean electricity on the electric grid by 2035, 100%. And we've got a ways to go. We've got to add, I mean, you know, just in, in our speak, we have to add about 2,000 gigawatts of clean electricity to the electric grid to get to that goal, which is a huge amount of capacity. And so that means, um, that means solar and wind, yes, but it means hydroelectric power. It means making sure we're not removing any non-carbon uh, emitting power like nuclear. It means making sure that we're tapping the heat beneath our feet with this geothermal, that we are looking at offshore wind, onshore wind, that we're looking at tidal power, wave power. There's just so much out there that we are looking at and looking to deploy. That includes electrifying our transportation system. That means batteries for electric vehicles and electric vehicles themselves. And that means when you have an electric grid that is charging up all these batteries, you've got to make sure you've got enough capacity or that your electric grid can be what is known as bi-directional so that all of the batteries and the, how many of you have an electric vehicle? Does anybody have an electric vehicle here? Few people? few people on the back. So we want your, your batteries on electric vehicles to be able to, yes, power your car, but if things got really um, dicey or power went down somewhere, ideally, you'd want to have all of those batteries be able to contribute to resiliency on the grid. So be able to take power and give power so that you have an electric grid that is really a a virtual power plant is what they call them. So there's all sorts of stuff happening in this space that is very, very exciting. And the Inflation Reduction Act has just put it's even total, more. In the reason why yeah. it's so important, Bill, is you know, I mean, first of all, there is a, this 30% tax credit for clean energy deployment. So those who are developers of uh, wind farms and, and you know solar farms, et cetera, there's a huge incentive now, a tax credit to be able to do that. That's number one. There's also a tax credit for individuals to be able to put that solar on your home. And so there's more solar that goes on. There's also the tax credit extends really, it's, it's a sort of technology agnostic, except for it is for clean technologies. So all kinds of technology. But that means that what it means really is that those tax credits, and, and that includes the tax credits to be able to buy electric vehicles, by the way. You can get a $7,500 tax credit if you buy a new electric vehicle that was made in the United States. And you may be thinking, oh, who can afford a Tesla? But actually, electric vehicles that are being put out now by the auto manufacturers, there are many models that are below $30,000 a year. I drive a Chevy Bolt, that's one of them. And when you take $7,500 off the top at the dealer, 
dollar. You can, it's easier to finance that amount, and it's going to be true for leased vehicles as well. The leases will be passed uh, through, and you get that tax credit. If you have to, if you want to buy a used electric vehicle, you get a four thousand dollar tax credit, according to the Inflation Reduction Act. So my point in saying that is that, there, and there's also tax credits associated with the manufacture of the batteries for electric vehicles and the vehicles themselves. And so America, with the Inflation Reduction Act, has become irresistible in terms of jobs, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of being able to deploy these clean energy technologies. We, you know, as I'm sorry to go on because I know you have, no, but this I, is so exciting to me because as the former governor of Michigan, I was the governor during the time when the auto industry went bankrupt, right? And the Obama administration, President, Vice President then Biden came in and gave us uh, help for the auto industry to rescue, which was all paid back. But the bottom line is, we saw so much manufacturing go overseas. And as a nation, we did nothing about it. We just sat there with our arms folded and said, well, globalization, let it go, you know, free trade, et cetera. Now, you know, we used to say that for a state to try to get a manufacturing facility and compete with, with China, with others who, are, who were really in the game, it was like bringing a knife to a gunfight because they had industrial strategy, those other countries, like China. Understandably, they wanted to get that for their people. And so now we have an industrial strategy that is going to bring back and onshore all of these. And just proof point that uh, this is working is that since the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law were passed, just the just if you just get this one slice, which is the batteries to the electric vehicle, that whole supply chain was overseas. Since those laws have been passed. 81, and the 81st one was announced today, Ford just announced a big battery factory in Michigan. 81 battery factories, whether pieces of the supply chain, the whole supply chain, have announced that they are moving or opening up in the United States. 81 factories, this never would have happened before, but because we are irresistible, <laughs> we are bringing it back. And I want you to know the Press family, we're doing our share. Our son in Bend, Oregon, just told uh, Carol and me yesterday, he just bought a Chevy Volt for $22,000. Yes. See? I mean, See uh, what new I'm saying? with all the technology <laughs> and a $7,500 tax credit. Plus, he gets something for hooking up a charger right, in their home. Right, you get tax credit off of that. That's yeah. another 30% of a tax credit. Irresistible. It's, see? <laughs> <laughs> you, so is the American auto industry, are they, they're bought into this? They're, they're totally bought into Because they were dragging their heels, let's face it, for they, a long time. No, they time. were. And you know, Tesla really did do uh, an unbelievable thing, which is to say, we can make electric vehicles and we can do it in the United States. So that was amazing. But they were high end. I mean, under, you know, people were paying a lot of money for that. And yep. so it was really sort of stoking the domestic auto industry, other than Tesla, like Ford, GM, you know, Stellantis now, uh, to be able to do this. So last summer, all of the domestic automakers stood uh, in the Rose Garden with the president saying that they are committed that half of their fleet by 2030, half of the new cars sold in America, will be electric. And of course, what that does for the climate, what that does for the planet is just fantastic.
If you look at any of the studies about the uptake in electric vehicles, it is like the hockey stick. People, I mean, first of all, if you drive one, you're not going back. It just is. It's <laughs> quiet, and you don't, you save, if you drive one car, you save 70 bucks a month in a fill-up because the amount of money that it takes to charge a car to, you know, is about 11 bucks uh, to fill up an average vehicle and the amount of money it takes to fill up an average vehicle, depending on the price uh, of gas, could be, you know, 35, 40, 50 last summer. It was close to that. So, you know, it's so much more economical uh, to be able to do that, so. You mentioned so many elements of this uh, that I'd like to come back and touch on. Let's start, you mentioned the electric grid. I think yes. most of us have the impression that the grid is kind of Old and it is creaky old. and <laughs> fall apart, and maybe we shouldn't be depending on it. What's the yeah? No, the, the grid status? is old. I mean, as you can imagine, it was built. You know, I mean, some of it was built in the 50s. Uh, it's on wooden poles. You know, you see all of this. These extreme weather events make the grid that much more fragile, right? So we, part of the um, the efforts uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act, the bipartisan infrastructure law, gives us twenty billion dollars to invest in in resiliency on our grid, as well as expanding the capacity of our grid. But one of the things, I mean, it, it means that we have to add new transmission lines, and we have to add new transmission lines that are not on, on you know, that are really sturdy. In places we have to bury the wires, uh, especially if it's in a high, you know, uh, fire area or in a high wind area to make it more safe. In some cases, what we need to do is to what is known as advanced reconductoring, just add on the existing, if the grid is sturdy, if the transmission, uh, you know, the transformers are sturdy, you can reconductor the wires, and that means you can get, in many cases, twice as much energy through the efficient materials that are next generation reconductoring materials on the wires. So we've got to do all of that. But we basically have to double the size of our grid, Bill, oh. to be oh. able to take on and replace the current uh, dirty power to make it all clean and that is a lot of uh, that's a lot of effort it's a lot and and we want to have all these we want to try a lot of microgrids so that you don't have everything be centralized power so solar panels etc on homes community solar so that there are smaller pockets of power being delivered to a community so that it's separate from the main grid uh, so there's all sorts of things including the virtual power plants that i was talking about and for anybody here who lives in the washington area most, most of you do um, you don't have to be in California to think about solar pow power. Totally. Carol and I live a block away, and we have now for, what, 10 years, had solar panels in our house here on Capitol Hill. Um, and we actually make money. We get a check because we generate more power than the two of us can use. So it's really worth looking into if you have. Oh, no. Completely. Here. And yeah. if you have an electric vehicle, you plug it in and you <laughs> well, run on sunshine. Well, that's you know, the next that question. Is, Where are all these magic charging stations that you're talking okay, about. So, <laughs> great point. This goes back to the Department of Transportation and the Department of Energy have a joint office, and the joint office is to help 
deploy the $7 billion that we received for charging stations across America. And so the goal is to get 500,000 charging stations, stations across America so that if you live in a rural area, if you live in a, an area where there isn't a huge amount of electric vehicles, you can always find a charge. Now, if you're lucky enough to have a garage, you can always just plug in an electric vehicle and a three and a grounded plug in your garage. So that's not an issue. But it's for people who don't have garages, for folks who live in apartments, et cetera, it may, it's more difficult, right? So the first tranche of this money has now, all 50 states submitted plans to this joint office between DOE and the Department of Transportation. All 50 states' plans were approved, in, and D.C., and Puerto Rico. All of, everybody was approved. Um, thank you for that. Um, and uh, the, the money has been sent to the states, and, and D.C., and Puerto Rico. Um, <laughs> You got and a local crowd here. You know. I know. You gotta, I get it. I got to read my crowd better. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, in the next, in the very short amount of time, the guidance for those entities, for the, for you know, the states and, and D.C. et cetera, are going to be issued, so that you should start to see more public charging out. So the first tranche of money was for corridors, transportation corridors, where people are likely to be going more dis greater distances, so that you can. What the goal is is that you will see a charging station on every freeway or highway every 50 miles there will be a, a fast charger and there'll have to be at least four four uh, plugs on that charger and there probably will be multiple chargers together so so every 50 miles it can't be more than a mile off the freeway kind of like a gas station right and it should be um, enabled to be connected via app uh, if you've got a smartphone, et cetera, you'll be able to see what, you know, what chargers are available, where they are, et cetera, and plug into them. So that was the first uh, chunk. The second chunk of money is going to go out for um, urban areas, which, which may be poorer and maybe not have as much access to electric vehicles so that we don't have the chicken and egg issue. We want people to have access to charging so they can feel comfortable getting an electric vehicle. And the same thing with rural areas. So, so we have charging corridors first, then the urban and rural uh, areas where we may not have as much second. So you're gonna start to see these you know, starting, I think, in the next couple of months, pop up all over so that we have an infrastructure, uh, charging infrastructure, to make feel com people feel comfortable driving an electric vehicle. Uh, and you mentioned solar as well. I mean, we again, we put on solar panels, but they were pretty expensive. Have, and that, I know that's kept a lot of people from making that investment, and it is investment, because yeah. eventually you get your money back. Is a, are we pr producing our own solar panels now? And is the price coming down? Yeah, okay, so number one, are we producing our own? We're not producing enough, but because of the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act, now manufacturers are onshoring. Now, China really has uh, had had a real lock on this area uh, of uh, producing solar panels. But since the Inflation Reduction Act, there's an American company called First Solar. It just announced a huge new... Uh, factory, in fact, two of them. Um, Georgia just announced the biggest solar factory in the in America uh, from a South Korean uh, company that is coming to Georgia to make solar panels. We're seeing more and more of that reshoring, uh, which is very exciting. Number one. Number two. The technology itself has improved so much. I don't know when you had your solar panels installed. Mm -hmm. Was, 
10 years ago. Ten years ago. So the, the technology has brought down the price uh, and it continues to drive down the price. So the price of solar has dropped significantly over the past uh, decade uh, because of that research and development. And then third, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, people will get this 30% tax credit for putting solar panels on their roof off the top. And then if people are in a moderate or low income, if for example, they're eligible for weatherization um, dollars, they can have them fully paid for, um, which is very exciting as well. So there's all kinds of incentives like that uh, that, that will generate, I think, demand. Uh, and let's pause there for a quick break here on the Bill Press Spot, and then we'll continue our conversation with the Secretary Jennifer Granholm. When we come back, I want to ask her the question a lot of us have been asking ourselves uh, and others, when are we finally going to get away from fossil fuels? And today's podcast with uh, Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of Energy, brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. 1.3 million members strong, the UFCW under the leadership of Mark Perone. They're the union members we probably see most often in our daily lives because they're there serving us in our great retail chains, our big grocery stores, working in our chemical plants and our food processing plants, as well as our cannabis plants. We salute the good members of the UFCW, thank them for their great work, and thank them especially for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we're back with today's podcast, Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm, our guest, uh, in a recent in-person interview at the Hill Center on Capitol Hill. And what I wanted to know is what you want to know. Fossil fuels, when are we finally going to break with them once and for all, or are we? Well, I think, I mean, I do think people have to realize this is a transition, right? Um, that, you know, not everybody's going to flip over to, to uh, electric vehicles. And, uh, you know, there will be a need for uh, fossil fuels in, 
as we proceed through till the point where everybody, um, all countries have said that they want to get to net zero by 2050. Um, so the question is, what does that look like? And in the United States, we, you know, the interim step would be 2035 when we want to have 100% clean electricity, right? And so as we move people to electric vehicles, that will, that will help. But, you know, uh, even the uh, inter, um, intergovernmental panel on climate change that, um, you know, was born at the, in the Paris Accords, et cetera, where, is, where everybody's trying to get to this net zero by 2050. All the scientists, they, everybody's in agreement that it's not going to be an on-off switch. It is going to be a transition. And it has to be a managed transition because you don't want to see, you know, people all of a sudden have no power because we've switched so soon with haven't replaced it with, with the clean energy that we want. But I will say this, that the incentives that were passed will ensure that we'll get there a lot quicker than we certainly would have otherwise. We want to, uh, you know, and, and so th it'll be around for a few more years, but even the oil and gas companies, as much as they're making so much money right now, <laughs> uh, but even that they are seeing, you know, as we say in Michigan, where the puck is going, and they're skating to um, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are doing significant investments mm. in, for example, offshore wind or in geothermal. I mean, geothermal, if you take an oil and gas worker who's working on a rig, uh, I mean, what geothermal is, is drilling right down and you've, you have to have people who know the subsurface as they say and to be able to identify where the best spots are um, and so the transition in many ways uh, for for some technologies is very easy for them and so we're constantly uh, encouraging that uh, to happen and I think even these invest these uh, incentives are causing a number of them to up their game let me ask you about a bigger picture and that is the war in Ukraine has certainly disrupted um, supply, particularly in Western Europe, has it impacted uh, our energy issue supply or, uh, here in the United States? And what are we doing in terms of globally to yeah. offset that? I mean, I think the war in Ukraine has created a, a really a bifurcated um, global energy track. I mean, you see our uh, us and our NATO allies banding together to be able to create more energy security. And people are now seeing the shift to renewable energy and clean energy as a form of national security. Putin weaponized energy, right? And so people don't want to be the victims of countries who don't share our values holding the cards for energy. And so everybody, I mean, in Europe, there has been this massive acceleration to renewables because that is homegrown energy and people can feel like I have some people in the countries can feel like I have some agency over what I can uh, get from the the wind and the sun and uh, and so that has been an amazing unintended consequence I'm sure of what Putin's war has done so now Russia uh, and all of their supply of, uh, of oil of diesel uh, has been cut off of Europe and so now they are finding other paths for that. So they sell to China, they sell to India, they sell to a few other countries. But it has, um, it has really helped to um, choke the supply of money that Russia was making to be able to execute its war, um, which, is, which is good. 
but it also creates this awareness of how much the globe has to accelerate. I have my, my counterpart in Ireland, minister, the energy minister there, his name is Eamon Ryan, and he has said that, um, that this move to renewables is such a national security uh, issue because no country can weaponize access to the sun. No country can ever weaponize access to wind. Mm. It is uh, a national security issue. So that's number one. You know, number two, um, it has made the United States, uh, you know, an indispensable nation which, with respect to energy supplies, particularly for us, our liquefied natural gas has helped Europe in, in their time as they have lost so much supply. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a, for a period of time. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly everybody continues to move. Um, when Russia, uh, when Russian um, energy was pulled away from Europe, they, um, you know, they switched to coal, they switched to LNG, um, but ultimately what they want to do is switch to zero carbon technologies. And so there may be an interim period where there was an uptick uh, in uh, fossil fuels, but I think you're going to see this continued drive to um, decarbonize. And that's true in Europe. It's true. I mean, in the United States, we didn't take much Russian oil, uh, very little. We banned it, but we didn't take much. But I can tell you, because of the supply that was pulled off the market because of Russia not being able to sell, there were millions of barrels per day. And of course, oil is traded on a global market. And when you pull away supply, that means that price goes up, which is what you saw last summer, right? When you, we got up to $5 a gallon. That was direct result of Russian oil being banned by countries like us and in Europe and that supply being pulled off the market. So the president in this interim period said what we're going to do is we want to help that supply globally so we can bring down the price of, of gas. Um, so we'll release a million barrels a day from our strategic petroleum reserve to try to balance out supply and demand while our uh, oil and gas companies and the global oil and gas companies picked up uh, the gap that was created by Russian oil being pulled off the market. So now, that's why you're seeing prices moderate right now. And I think they'll probably stay around this level, depending on what happens in uh, China in terms of gas prices, which is what people uh, really feel. But ultimately, what the war did was create this huge push to renewables. And I think that's a, that's a really healthy uh, a silver lining in a okay, terrible sort of yeah. circumstance, yeah. yeah. So um, nuclear labs, 17 of them. Now, 17 labs, um, I would say, uh, three of them are NNSA labs, the National Nuclear Security Administration. Um, I was just kidding when I said earlier about the number one question was the gas stoves. But, uh, but it is, I've been thinking a lot about it. But I'm not kidding when I say. Do you have a gas say, stove? Uh, we do have a gas stove. Yeah. <laughs> It's all right. We have a gas stove, too. And you'd have a hard time getting it away from, <laughs> from my cold, from dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> but on the nuclear labs, I'm not kidding when I say that I uh, spoke to uh, a good friend, Governor Jerry Brown, told him we were going to be talking tonight and asked him if he had any particular question that he might like me to ask you about the nuclear labs. So with the help of uh, Jerry Brown, I'm, I ask you, are you confident that our nuclear labs are doing enough on clean energy and climate change. 
Okay, so um, are you pushing them in, enough in that direction? Right. When you saying. when you say the nuclear labs, I'm just uh, just to be those Department are the labs. of Energy labs, I right. guess. Right. So we have Sorry. 17 labs uh, yeah. at the Department of Energy, and there are three of them that are attached to the Department of Defense, the National right okay. Nuclear Security Administration, and those are yeah. the labs that really do the work on our nuclear stockpile, et cetera. We'll you get know, to them next. Well, but <laughs> I will say this: that you know the Lawrence Livermore National Lab is one of those mm. uh, NNSA labs, and they're the ones who. Um, you know, who were able to achieve, achieve what is known as ignition, which means, for those of you who don't follow nuclear power so much, um, but, but fusion is, of course, bringing together, pushing together elements of uh, an atomic nucleus, and that pushing them together creates energy. It's what happens in the sun. It's what happens in the stars. It's been really hard to do. People have tried for 60 years to replicate the process uh, in the stars and have not been able to do it. And what the process, what you really want to do is to have more energy come out of this reaction than the energy it took to put to make the reaction, right? Mm -hmm. And that's called ignition. And that's fusion. And why do we like fusion? Because it leaves no waste, no nuclear waste. It is abundant uh, energy, clean energy. And if we can crack the code on how to take that process and commercialize it and make a commercial fusion reactor, that is an unbelievable game changer. So that process mm -hmm. happened in the NNSA lab. But all of our labs are working on energy. All of them are, uh, just re regardless, I mean, they could be working on nuclear energy other than, f they can be working on fission, which is the process of splitting atoms, versus fusion, which is the process of pushing the atomic nuclei together. The bottom line is, all of them, um, the Department Climate of Energy Climate change, labs. clean energy, they're on it. Yeah, and the cool stuff is, Bill, I just love these next generation technologies. Like we have launched a series of earth shots, what we call to, um, which are next generation technologies to help save the planet. What are the big, t big technologies, for example, you know, offshore wind, floating offshore wind platforms. You've seen some of these stationary um, offshore wind platform, platforms going into the Atlantic. But in the Pacific, because there's a huge drop off of when you get out in the water, you can't have stationary. So you might have to have floating platforms, but, we, but it's expensive. So the shot is to reduce the cost by 90% of the offshore wind floating platform so it becomes more economical. Um, we, are, we have a, a shot on clean hydrogen, which uh, is hydrogen that's made by splitting water. Hydrogen is a form of energy or form of storage of energy or form of movement of energy. You split water, the H from H2O, right, is hydrogen. And if you can split that off and you can do it in a clean way, the energy created by, by renewable energy, it creates potentially a huge energy source. So we have a shot to reduce the cost of that to make it commercially viable. We have a whole series, we got eight shots happening uh, and more <laughs> coming all the time, like enhanced geothermal and you know all this, all this very cool stuff. The labs are all working on that. So they've got their eye on the future uh, and the present. We have at the department, uh, our, our infrastructure has got our eye on the, on the present, and some of our labs have our eye on the past, which is cleaning up from some of the work that was done during the Manhattan Project, et cetera. People are still concerned about nuclear waste, no doubt, right? It is nuclear waste, we have got to deal with it. And there's a lot of technology in the labs that are looking at, for example, reprocessing of that waste. France reprocesses 
its nuclear waste, and we could too. So we, we need to, I think, look at uh, ways to be able to recycle uh, and not have that waste. People are also concerned about safety, obviously, as well. But I can tell you that our uh, regime, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, we have the gold standard of safety in this country. And, you know, you just don't see those incidents. And nuclear power represents about 20 percent of our, of, our, uh, of our power and uh, about 50 percent of our non-carbon emitting power. And so pulling that offline at a time when we want to reduce carbon emissions is a challenge as well. There's a lot of technology going into next generation nuclear, these small modular reactors or reactors that don't, uh, that don't produce as much waste, for example. So all of that research is also happening, which I think has um, you know, made people think, well, maybe we should look at uh, technology as a way of answering some of these tough questions with respect to nuclear. I think you know now what I knew coming in here tonight, that we have the right person in the right place at the right time, don't you think? Oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. Uh, I've long lamented the fact that you were born in Canada, I'm sorry, <laughs> and therefore could not run. But, well, first of all, how's Michigan looking these days? Looking a lot better, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. It's so <laughs> great. Yes. We have a fantastic governor in Gretchen Whitmer. She is just a kick butt. Yeah. Yeah. And in this past election, now, I, you know, I, I'm making assumptions about the audience here, but let's just say that, <laughs> that she uh, got a legislature, both uh, chambers, that agrees with her. And that's really great, because when I was elected, I had a legislature that um, both the House and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the Attorney General, everybody was in a different party than I was. And so, so this is nice to be able to govern with, uh, with family. <laughs> uh, we like trifectas. Yes, <laughs> we do. <laughs> uh, and so um, while you cannot run for president, um, we know now that your great senator, Debbie Stabenow, mm. uh, is stepping down. So far as I know, there's nothing that would prevent your running for United States Senate from Michigan. Um, you want to make a little news tonight? I have a great job. <laughs> That's you my do. news. No, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I love my job. I love my boss. I'm happy where I am. And you're doing a great job. Thank I you, Madam Secretary. Thank, Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's podcast with Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm doing a great job for all of us at the DOE. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Now we'll let you go, but invite you back for this week's roundtable. It's going to be a big roundtable talking especially about President Biden's secret trip to Kiev in Ukraine, meeting with President Zelensky, and he was accompanied by our own Sabrina Siddiqui, frequent guest on our roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. So lots to talk about this Friday, that and all the rest of the news of the week in Washington. Have a great week, folks. We'll see you on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>